Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So we're in, we're in John chapter 7, and instead of me kind of giving a little bit of a tie-in here at the beginning, I want to just jump right into the first five verses, and then we're going to kind of make sense of, of what's being said here, how this relates to last week, and, and where we're going to continue to go with our series here in John. So John 7 verse 1 to 5 says, After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Sorry, I should have put that other one up there. Since Jesus, since Jesus did this miracle in the last couple of Sundays that we've been reading about feeding the 5,000 and his discussion about being the bread of life, um, some time has passed now. He's continued to minister in and around the province of Galilee. And he kept his ministry there because he knew that going into Judea, he would be heading into hostile territory because the Jewish leaders were already looking for a way to kill Jesus. So the calendar continues to march on and the festival of shelters, also known as the festival of tabernacles or booths, if you ever have heard of it, it was an annual seven-day festival and it has come up, right? So during this festival, the people celebrate God's protection over them during their exodus from Egypt. That's what this whole festival is about. And Jesus' younger brothers, the biological children of Joseph and Mary, they seem to be kind of poking fun at Jesus, mocking him a little bit as they egg him on to go to Judea, which is where this festival would be held. It's kind of interesting. We always think, well, Jesus grew up in a perfect family and all of his circumstances were just so, you know, butterflies and lollipops and all this kind of thing. But even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Some of them come around. I think they all do, as a matter of fact. But at this juncture in time, they're actually poking fun at him. Say, oh, you're the the Messiah. Hey, you're this miracle worker. Well, hey, you better go stand on the biggest soapbox you can find. You got to show yourself to the world, right? So they're using their human reasoning to push Jesus into a potentially dangerous situation. Jesus replies, verse 6, he says, Now is not the time for me to go, but you can go any time. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. So Jesus points to the differences between him and his brothers, right? Jesus can't go to this festival now, but his brothers can. Why? Well, his brothers aren't hated by the world. They haven't put themselves out there and and distinguished themselves from the rest of society in such a way that they're now being opposed. But Jesus has done exactly that. As Jesus has gone around teaching and and doing miracles, he's convicted people about what's right and wrong. And people have taken offense. And they don't like to hear that, oh, you think that what I'm doing is potentially sinful? They don't like it. So instead they react poorly to Jesus. In, in this John series that we've been in, we've seen that the Pharisees already have contempt for Jesus because a following for him has formed. And they, in fact, are looking for a way to kill him now because Jesus at one point said that he 
came from God the Father, which meant that he and the Father were equal. And that really ticked them off. On top of that, Jesus does point out our sins. He does convict us. He does it in a loving way, but he doesn't want us to remain in it. He's not saying you're bad and you can never be good. But he says, there's a better way. The way that you're on right now is not what I or my father has desired for you. And instead of saying, oh, thank you, Jesus. This correction is just what I needed. They probably said, how dare you? And now they're looking for a way to get Jesus out of their life. All these things that are going on are God's work for Jesus's life. But it's in this very work that hostility has come against him. So Jesus decides to stay in Galilee while his brothers leave for the festival in Judea. Interestingly enough, verse 10 says, But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some people or some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. So Jesus does end up going to the festival, but he keeps his visit low key. He flies under the radar. He knows if he goes with his brothers, they're probably going to bring him into a compromising situation. But if Jesus goes solo, he has a little bit more say and control about just how exposed he becomes. So Jesus is heading into a tricky situation here, right? We see in this, in this passage we just read that the Jewish leaders are waiting to get their hands on him. He's a hot topic. He's being discussed amongst all the festival goers. Some people think he's good. Some people think he's a fake and a liar. But because of their fear of being heard by their Jewish leaders, no one has the guts to speak in favor of Jesus in a public setting. So to me, it feels like some of these people that we're learning about in this passage, they want to openly believe in Jesus. They say he's a good man. There's something about him that makes sense to me. But they've concerned themselves way too much with what their Jewish leaders would have to say about them if they openly profess that they think that Jesus is the real deal. So this is actually a real battle that goes on in many of us today, isn't it? I mean, we read about this here in these Jewish times. It's like, oh, that's, that's so long ago, Jeff. And, you know, I know who Jesus is, and I wouldn't be afraid to, to speak about him to anyone. I don't know. I, I think we all still grapple with this thing. We worry about what others may say about us if we talk openly and freely about this Lord that we love. Will people get mad at me? Will people be offended? Will people try to avoid me if I speak about who Jesus is? This is the case for the people who were worried about what kind of trouble the Jewish leaders would bring into their lives. Two chapters ago, Jesus actually showed us how to handle a situation just like this. When people are critical or you think potentially they could be critical of us. Speaking to the Jewish leaders who were harassing Jesus for healing the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. You remember this one? When they're coming against him, Jesus said in John 5, 41, your approval means nothing to me. That's exactly the right attitude that we need to take on when we're going to live our life for Christ. If I'm more worried about what you think about me than what Christ is going to think about me, then you guys are actually my Lord. And that's not right, is it? 
When we, when we yield only to our Savior, that's when we keep him as the king of our life because we're concerned about what he says and his approval, not one another's or people outside of the walls of this church. So Jesus was focused on living for God. So focused on that, as a matter of fact, that winning over his critics wasn't actually something he obsessed about. It wasn't on his agenda. So what if we adopted this mentality that Jesus had when we, when we fear what people may think of us for living full on for Christ? What if we adopted this mentality of being so focused on honoring God with our lives that critical voices didn't matter to us any longer? That would be glorious. Now, easier said than done, right? Right. Yes. We're all, yeah, it's true. Like, these are the things we, we get ramped up. We get excited. We say, yeah, I'm going to go live for the Lord. And then it's like, oh, but that person just looked at me. Did they, were they wondering about, were they talking about me? I think their eyebrows went up. Oh my goodness. Who cares, right? So here's a question for you. All right. Let's just have some fun. This is a safe place. And we're all in this together. We're all on the journey heading towards Christ. So let me ask you this. If you weren't at all worried about how anyone would react to you, what would you tell someone about Jesus today? So take a second here, okay? Think about the people that you interact with in your life. Probably people that the Holy Spirit has kind of pricked your heart about and just like, ah, I really want to say something, but I just don't know if I can. I'm just worried about their reaction. Well, what would you say to them? They're not here, maybe. Maybe they are. If you're thinking about your husband or wife, maybe just leave that one alone for now. That's more evangelistic. Let's say there's something that you want to say to someone. What would it be if you didn't worry about their reaction? What would you truly want to tell them about Jesus? Jesus loves you. Yeah. Yeah, he's for you. He cares about what you're going through, for sure. He died on the cross for you. Yes, he died on the cross for you. Very good. It's the way. It's the way. He has a purpose for your life. Yeah, a purpose. I like that. Hope and trust him. Yeah, hope and trust is, is for sure safe with Jesus. He changed me. He changed you too. Oh, yeah. I like that one. I think these are all good things. You know, we watched a movie. <laughs> Oddly enough, we watched a movie on a, on a kind of a dreary evening this week. And this guy was talking about courage and how he met his wife. And he, he, just, he was telling his son the story. And because his son was now growing up and had a crush on a girl. And he says, all you need, all you need is like 20 seconds of insane courage. And you just go for it. You just like throw off everything that, that you're concerned about and just go for it. And you'll be surprised at how profitable the results can actually be. I think that's sometimes what it takes for us. When we step out in faith, when we say, Jesus, my life is actually in your hands. For the next 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds, Lord, I'm in. I'm going for it. And we just, we just go and we speak exactly what's on our heart to the person who we feel God is asking us to speak to. Is there any way that that can go so badly that we'll never recover? No. What's the worst that can literally happen? Seriously, like you're, you're probably not going to die. And if you do, to live as Christ dies gain, right? So whatever. 
But you're probably not going to face the same kind of opposition that Christ did. Maybe someone is going to look at you and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then you get a chance to explain. Because it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me say that a little bit more clearly. And the conversation goes on. Maybe they could say, I've never heard that before. And you say, well, we hear it all the time. You should come to our church. You know, this is the way I live my life. Maybe someone will say, I don't believe in that stuff. And you could say, yeah, you know what? I used to be in your shoes, right? Like there's so many ways that we can continue to relate to people. But sometimes you just need that little burst of courage to say these things. And all of a sudden the Lord takes over. Because when we say, Lord, I'd rather live courageously for you than in fear of my critics. That's when the Holy Spirit has a chance to really take hold and lead us to this beautiful place. When our concern is on God's approval of us, rather than on people's approval of us, I think what it does is it actually frees us to live for Christ the way that he intended. Because I'm not worried about you and you're not worried about me. We're not worried about other people. We just say, one day I'm going to stand before my Lord. And I just want that to be the best experience possible. So Jesus has come to this festival of shelters, like it said in the passage here, under the radar. The Pharisees are looking for him. The people are debating between themselves who Jesus really is. No one would come out and say that they believed in Jesus. And it sounds like we're, we're being painted a picture here that is showing us this is a less than stellar opportunity for Jesus, to say the least. Maybe he should just kind of duck out of town, head back to Galilee and lay low until things calm back down again, right? But nope, that's not what Jesus does. In verse 14, something amazing happens. It says, then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to preach. Or teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks the truth, not lies. I love this verse. This is... To me, this is amazing, right? So even in a less than ideal situation, Jesus is living out the will of his father because the approval of people doesn't mean anything to him, but the approval of his father means everything. So he spends time teaching. He stands up in this political mess that he's in where people are coming against him, where people are worried about him, where people aren't even willing to say his name publicly for fear of the consequences that could come against them in that moment. He stands up to teach. And you know what? This reminds me of an amazing verse. In, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, it says, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Now, on the surface, this verse may not seem quite as clear as we're going to understand it to be. So I'm going to break it down here for us. When it says in season, what that refers to is times where there is a good opportunity or when it's a convenient opportunity to speak about Christ. And sometimes those opportunities, they present themselves to us. And someone will come up to you and say, hey, you go to church on Sundays, right? You know, I'm going through this weird thing right now. Like, what do you think I should do? Does the Bible have anything to say? Man, what an opportunity. Someone's asking you to speak about Christ into their life, right? So clearly an in-season opportunity. But what about out-of-season? Out-of-season means, means when it's perhaps an inopportune or inconvenient time. 
So often when we want to serve Jesus or, or speak boldly for Jesus, we say things like, well, I'm just looking for the right opportunity or for a door to open, right? We're just looking for like angels to come down and just point to us, say, this is your moment, right? It's like, guys, it might not be that clear. Maybe not. It might be for you, but it hasn't always been that way for me. Jesus is showing us here that circumstances aren't always going to look right for us to act out in faith. Sometimes it's going to seem inconvenient, inopportune, and maybe like it's not even a good idea. But is it ever a bad idea to speak the truth about Jesus Christ? Whoa, that was a poor response. (laughs) We only had one no. So let's try this again. Is there ever a bad moment to speak the truth about Jesus Christ? No. That's right. Man, we need to believe that because if we believe that that's true, that every moment is a moment that Jesus has potentially ordained us to speak the truth to someone else, we're going to step out in boldness. But if we believe that there's only these magical moments that come once in a lifetime, we're going to live a very sheltered Christian experience. The people respond to Jesus' teaching uh, with his, once he speaks out boldly by being pleasantly surprised. But they wondered how he knew so much without being formally trained. I think a lot of people probably say that when they look at me. I never went to Bible school or anything like that, right? But Jesus tells them that his message is from God. I think when, when we understand this about Jesus, like his anointing is so perfect and wonderful and, and awesome, right? He speaks the truth about his father with boldness and courage because that's the mission that God gave him in his life. Now, you and I aren't Jesus, which is too bad because, man, I would love to feel what that's like, but... You and I are in Jesus, and we don't need to be, right? Because Jesus is actually in us. The same anointing that was on Jesus is actually in your life when the Holy Spirit enters you when you believe, right? And he wants to work through you. Jesus said, I'm going away, and the reason is so that I can send my Holy Spirit, and you're going to accomplish greater things than I did. Man, like, when we understand, like, that Christ was confident because of his anointing from the Father, and we actually have the same sort of anointing, not to be the Savior of the world, but to continue on the ministry and the message of Christ, that gives me a boldness that I could never conjure up on my own. But because Christ is in me, I say, Lord, I'm in. And that sounds exciting. Then we get this amazing part of this last section that we read, verse 17 and 18. In response to the people wondering about his teaching, Jesus says in verse 17, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. They were questioning him. They were wondering, hey, where's this coming from, right? What's this guy up to? Where does this message originate? I find this verse so inspiring and captivating. As I studied verse 17 this week, the first part of this verse just kept standing out to me. I couldn't, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't get past it. Anyone who wants to do the will of God. That word wants is so crucial to this verse. What do you think? Doesn't it sound like a, like a condition or a motive of our heart that Jesus is talking about here? Do you want to serve me? Because if you do, and then he lays out the rest, right? I know it's not phrased in a question, uh, but the more I read it, I just kept feeling like Christ was asking us, Deep in your heart, Christian Fellowship Church, do you love me? Do you want to obey me? Do you want to do my will above everything else? 
And then comes the promise. It's kind of like, because if you do want to do my will, if that is the desire of your heart, then you will know because you will recognize my teaching. You will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. I think Jesus is saying to us, man, if your heart longs for me and desires to obey me, all that I'm offering to you will be yours because it's exactly what you're looking for. So what are we learning here, right? I think we're learning that we receive from Jesus when doing his will is what we desire to do. Think about it like this, okay? If you're in the market for a new vehicle, suddenly you're you're starting to pay much more attention to all the vehicles that you see around you. Has this ever happened to you? You're looking for a truck, a white one. It's like, man, everybody's driving white trucks. All of a sudden you notice them, right? If you're looking for a new sports car, you're like, ooh, that one sounds nice. I like the ground effects on that one. Can I get those rims on this car? Like we're asking all these kinds of questions because this is what's in our mind. This is what's in our heart. This is what we're thinking about. So isn't it the same thing with Jesus? When we want to do his will, when, when pleasing him, when waking up every morning and living for him and bringing, uh, seeking his approval instead of other people's, when that's our heart's desire, suddenly we hear opportunities everywhere we go. His teaching is in our mind all the time. His instructions are being brought back to our attention as the Holy Spirit ministers to us because that's what our heart is dwelling on. What dwells in our hearts is in fact what we build our lives on. I love what Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So when you're delighted because of Jesus, what's the greatest desire of your heart? Jesus! Right? When your delight comes from him, your heart is full of him. When your heart's full of him, he's what you desire. And when he's what you desire, the Lord says, of course, I'm never going to withhold my son from you. I will give him to you because that is who you want. This is what Psalm 37 verse 4 is teaching us. And this principle of our heart's desires lead us to receive what we're desiring. This principle is all over scripture. It's the same thing in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is or what you value, there your heart will be also. If you value Christ, your heart is going to be for him. If you value money, that's where your heart's going to be. If you value vacations and crazy experiences all over the world because that's your adrenaline nature that's where your heart's going to be what we delight in and value that's what our heart is full of and our desires and love for jesus matter if we don't desire him we're not going to see him and experience him in the way that he wants so adding to this amazing truth jesus says that in verse 18 those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks the truth, not lies. So again, Jesus speaks to the motives of our hearts. If we want glory and honor and pleasure for ourselves, we're going to live accordingly, doing whatever it takes for us to get what we want, because that will make us happy. But if we want to give glory and honor and praise to God, then we will speak and live promoting God and not ourselves. In fact, we'll gladly give up things that we never used to give up because now our heart has changed and say, Lord, you've captured me in a way that I never thought was possible. Everything that I desire is for you. And now I'm even willing to give up things so that I can have more of you because you are my treasure, not the things that I could obtain in this world. So by saying this, Jesus is also exposing the hearts of the Jewish leaders that these people concern themselves with so much. 
The Jewish leaders were all about strict obedience to the law of Moses. They loved rules and regulations and they used this to give them leverage and power over people because that's what they wanted. They wanted to be in charge. That was the motive of their heart. It wasn't to keep people pure and holy before a God who loved them. It was for them to have power and authority. They lacked love and character. And Jesus is just the opposite of these Jewish leaders. His heart is for God and for the people, not just rules and regulations. So Jesus isn't motivated by power over people, but rather he's motivated by love for people. So Jesus talks about this difference next. In verse 19, he says, Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. The crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath too, when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it as to not break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. So again, Jesus is continuing to speak about the motives of the heart. Jesus is saying, man, I healed a man on the Sabbath and you circumcise your baby boys on the Sabbath. If that's what the law of Moses requires, what's the difference? There is no difference. There are no two standards, one for me and one for you. We're actually all supposed to be judged by the motives of our heart. And if we choose to obey the father or if we choose to obey a tradition, it would seem that the people were holding Jesus to a different standard than the Jewish leaders saying that he was sinning on the Sabbath. Yet the Jewish leaders, they they didn't even think twice about the work that they did on the Sabbath. So with this in mind, Jesus continues, or the story continues, verse 25. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe he is the Messiah? Ah, but how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will just simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. So the people, obviously, they're going back and forth with Jesus. They're learning things. They're hearing his teaching. But they keep deliberating amongst themselves about who Jesus is. Again, they look to the Jewish leaders, wondering, oh, maybe since they're not doing anything about Jesus in this moment, maybe they think he is the Messiah. Maybe they believe. But then as soon as they they consider this idea, they almost immediately dismiss it just as quickly. And they find a reason to doubt that Jesus might be the Messiah. You see, there was this tradition amongst the Jewish people that they believed the Messiah would just literally appear out of nowhere. Like he wouldn't have a hometown. He wouldn't grow up. He would just, boom, there he is, right? But because there were several people that knew, ah, Jesus, I think he's a Nazareth kid. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mary Joseph, we know his parents. So they say, oh, well, we know where he comes from. So clearly he can't be the Messiah because he hasn't just appeared. As the people are debating uh, uh, about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus actually interjects. He responds. Verse 28, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, yes, you know me and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true. You don't know him. You don't know him, but I know him because I come from him and he sent me to you. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. 
because his time had not yet come. So Jesus agrees with what the people are saying. Yes, you, you know me. You know where I come from. But that's not the most important part. That's not the defining characteristic about Jesus to decide whether he's the Messiah or not. Jesus comes from God the Father. That's the point that Christ is trying to emphasize. I'm not here speaking on my own. I'm not here representing myself. I haven't created my own ministry. This is something that the Father has given me. And I'm here just relaying the message to you. But tragically, people are far more worried about the requirements of the law and being seen as good Jewish citizens by these Jewish leaders. So they don't recognize Jesus who has come from the Father because they haven't concerned themselves with knowing the Father in the first place. See, their treasure isn't the Messiah because that's not what they value the most. They value approval of these Jewish leaders. So that's what they've learned to recognize instead of Christ. When Jesus says this, the the leaders are upset and they try to arrest Jesus, but no one was able to because Jesus' time had not yet come. So we know that eventually Jesus will be arrested and he will suffer greatly on the cross, but it's not the right timing for that yet. So it seems that the father prevented these men from carrying out their plans against Jesus at this point because the father had more for the son to do. Verse 31, many among The crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? Okay, so we're seeing a bit of a glimmer of hope here, a bit of a silver lining. To me, this this statement gives me much hope for what was going on at that time. Many people had been way too concerned with with what their leaders thought about Jesus, and they weren't thinking for themselves. They weren't just seeing Jesus and understanding him through what he did, but rather through the lens of the Pharisees. But here we see that people actually, they began to say, okay, maybe there's something to this guy. They had seen his miracles and they were amazed. So they reasoned with themselves and said, okay, look at all these miracles. I mean, this is evidence. Like, is, is a Messiah going to come and do more than this man's doing right now? They're seeing Jesus' miracles as a reason to believe that, yeah, maybe he is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. 32. When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little while longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. And you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go? They asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going? So another failed arrest here because the panic of the Pharisees is followed by Jesus stating his father's plans. He'll be here a little longer, and then he will return to the father. So Jesus is pointing out what is coming down the road for him in what historians actually believe was kind of the, the six-month mark before he's arrested and crucified. So we're, it's in, in John, things speed up at the beginning and they slow down at the end as far as all the details that they share. The Jewish leaders even seem to mock Jesus in this little dialogue when they say, maybe he'll even go and teach the Greeks because they think it's a ridiculous idea. But little do they know that's actually going to be carried out in the most beautiful way possible when Christ ascends and the church is formed and empowered by the Holy Spirit and they go all over the world sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. I love 
I love that the things that this world mocks Christians for, followers of Jesus for, is actually the most beautiful thing that we can do to follow Christ. I just think it's so cool. Like people, people make fun of Christians sometimes. Oh, you guys get together in church. You're brainwashed. Ah, oh, Jesus is just a crutch. Yeah, actually, he's more than a crutch. He's a stretcher because I can't even limp into heaven without Jesus, right? It's like, no, we're not brainwashed, but we have been transformed by the renewing of our mind. You should give it a try. The things that they mock us for are the very beautiful things that Christ has done for us and is doing through us. After I studied this passage uh, for a few days this week, I, I think I'd say that the theme for the beginning of John chapter 7 is sovereignty in the face of opposition. In this chapter, not only was Jesus going up against his earthly arch nemesis, the Jewish leaders and Pharisees, but he was also mocked by his own brothers and people were confused and doubtful about him being the Messiah. But despite all this opposition, Jesus continued on with the father's plan for his life. Jesus's purpose never changed, no matter how people responded to him because he wasn't here to get our approval he was here to live out approval for the father so jesus remains sovereign the word sovereign means powerful and in control fully in control and jesus was sovereign in the midst of all this opposition like he never wavered it never it never was like oh boy it's getting away from me i gotta do something like there was no panic There was no, uh, maybe I should rethink this. There was no plan B. It's like, no, this is God's plan. I'm going to live it out. And even though people criticize, even though they come against me, even though they're trying to arrest me and kill me, I'm not going to deviate because my heart, my treasure is so with God the Father. So he still is powerful and he continues to work uh, the purpose that he has for himself. He's resolute and unwavering in his love and conviction and mercy and encouragement and help for those people of that day. But here's, what, here's the interesting thing. So we read stories like this. Sometimes we say, okay, story was a long time ago. Culture was very different. No one would just kill someone because they're a Christian today. Well, we know that that's not true. But maybe in our part of the world, it's less true, right? So we think, ah, I just don't know if I can really relate to this passage. Like, what am I supposed to get out of this? It's kind of at the end we say, so what? Well, here's the big so what for me. If this is the way that Christ was then, in when he had skin in the game and he was here on this earth, we have to recognize for ourselves in the life that we're living right now that this is how Christ is operating in your life. The same resolute mindset, the same unwavering, courageous, sovereign mindset that God had placed in Christ to achieve his will on earth is the same resolute confidence that he is working in your life today. Christ loves you. And he's, he's going after you with reckless abandon, not worried about what anyone else might think because his love for you is so great. You are the treasure that he wants in his life. That's why he gave his life for us, right? So like when I look at how to relate this story back into my life today, it's like, Lord, if you were that way pursuing those people and you never change, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're pursuing me in the same way today. And that gives, me, that gives me confidence to respond to Jesus as well, without holding back. One last verse I want to share. In Romans 8.28, it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. We've read this verse before. This is a well-known verse for people who have been part of Bible studies or have regular devotions. But this is the verse that ties in what we just read to our lives today. Christ is working for your good. If you've loved God and if you've, if you've put your faith in him, he's called you into something. You've, you've begun to respond. And God's going to continue to work. He's going to continue to call you out and say, I have good things in store for you. Keep following me. Don't give up. Be as resolute as I was. Be as unconcerned about the approval of people as I was. And that's how your life is going to make sense. If we take our eyes off of our treasure in heaven and we begin to worry about what's going on down here, that's when we get off base. But Christ has something so glorious for us. I just want to encourage you with that today, that God's in your corner and you shouldn't give up. Uh, Ron and Catherine, I'm going to move you forward and I'll, uh, I'll pray here as we get set for our final song. Lord God, we thank you so much for this passage. You know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's actually so good for us, and, and I'll even be so bold as to say, it's so good for me to see the struggle that was coming against you, Jesus. I mean, I know about these things, but at the same time, we look at these details that it wasn't just the people who were living opposite from you who were coming against you, but it was people right there in your own family who did, they just didn't have the same perspective that you did. So Lord, if, if you could live for the Father to honor him, despite the opposition that your own family presented, surely we can do that as well. So I pray, Father, for everyone here who has opposition in their own family to them following Christ, I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would give them boldness and courage. For those people who are worried about their friends or, or what society is thinking about them, and maybe they've even been ridiculed because of the social circles that they run in, people are grumbling about them. Oh, here comes that Bible thumper. Here comes that Jesus freak. I pray that we would not look for the approval of those people, but we would remember in those moments, Oh, Father, my approval that comes from you is the only thing I seek. I pray, Father, you just give us a long-term vision for what it means to follow you. Help us to always be thinking about eternity in heaven and how living on this earth now prepares us for that. I'm not preparing for tomorrow or for when I'm 60 or 80 or whatever. I'm preparing for life in heaven. Because of that, we all have an eternal perspective. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding us of, of those things today. Amen.